We are in our series, The Skeptic and the Believer today. This is part four. We are talking about a topic that would be what I think would be the number one question people have when you ask them about faith, when you ask them about belief in God. And if they are a skeptic and you ask them, why don't you believe in God? Or what you know, obstacles do you have to faith? One of the first couple of questions is going to be this one today. It's probably going to be the first one. I've had so many conversations with people, and their obstacle to faith is this question. It is this. If God is real, why is there evil in the world? If God is real, why is there evil? They can't reconcile that there is a loving God who can change everything, and yet there's so much evil in the world. They just can't reconcile that. So that is their obstacle to faith. And the argument kind of boils down to this. If he could, and he's good, if God could, and he's good, he would stop evil. And since there's evil in the world, there's either a problem with God's willingness to stop evil or his ability to stop evil. Because if he could, and he's good, obviously he would stop all this hurt, all this pain, all this suffering that's going on in the world. Now, atheists would use this as an argument against the existence of God. They would say, since there's evil in the world, God cannot exist because a good, all-powerful God would obviously stop evil. Therefore, if there's evil, there is no God. Now, real quick on this, and we're not going to talk about this too long, but the existence of evil in the world is not an argument against the existence of God. And I say that to say this. Any time, and we talked about this in week one, any time you use a moral argument to disprove God, it falls apart. Because without God, there are no morals. There is no moral standard without God. If we are just biology and cells, like evolution would say, then there is no morality without a higher moral standard. That's what we talked about week one. So without God... There is no morality. Without God, there can't be good and evil. There can't be right and wrong. So to suggest that the absence of evil is to suggest that God doesn't exist, that argument falls apart. But that's the argument, you know, against the atheist view. And I'm just guessing most of us here, most of the people who have a problem with evil in the world, they kind of stop short of becoming atheist. Most of the people who have a problem with evil in the world wouldn't, would say something like this. They would say, well, I believe that God still exists. I just have big problems with how he's running the show, right? I just have problems with how he runs things. I think he's there. Um, I was talking to a friend last week, and this friend said, I have come to the point where I believe that he is willing to stop evil, but for whatever reason, he just has to allow it. He can't stop evil. But we come to that point where we stop short of atheism, but we say, God, there's evil in the world. Um, I don't like how you allow this to happen. If you could, you would do something about this. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to ask three big questions regarding faith and evil. And as we do this, for some in the room here, a discussion about faith and evil might revolve around stuff that's far away, stuff you see on the news. You can't turn on the news for more than five minutes without seeing something tragic happening in the world. It might be a distant suffering that you have questions about, hurricanes and shooters in Las Vegas and other natural disasters around the world, and you might think, why is God even allowing that? It's something that's happening far away. And for others in the room, and I have to acknowledge this, your questions about God and his goodness revolve around what's going on in your life right now. 
you are hurting. You are experiencing pain and suffering. You have things going on that are very personal. It's not turning on the news. It is waking up in the morning that causes you to think, God, why are you allowing this to go on? So we're going to look at three big questions today. And the first one is this. First one is this. You might have this question. Why did God create evil? Why did he even create it? Why did he even make it a possibility? Why did he have to create that one tree in the garden with the bad fruit? Couldn't he have just left that out and things would have been smooth sailing? Why did he create evil? Well, the answer is this. God did not create evil. When God created the world, and we talked about this, we believe that science and nature points to a creator. That's what we believe. That's what I believe. I believe that's what the Bible teaches us. When God created the world, it was good. He looked at everything. He looked at that one tree with the apple, and he said, it is good. It is good. This is perfect. This is just how I want it. There was no evil there. Evil was not a created thing. Evil was not something separate. Uh, Evil is taking something good and corrupting it. Evil is taking something God designed and turning away from it. So even though God did not create evil, and here's a big point, God created freedom. God created Adam and Eve and humanity, you and I, with the ability to take what is good and to corrupt it, or to take what God has given us and to reject it and to turn away from it. God did not create evil. He created freedom, and freedom makes evil possible. The free will that God gave us is the option to choose him, to choose good, or to choose evil. And this is a big point, okay? This is a very important point because God, when he created humanity, when he created you and me, when he created Adam and Eve, he wanted to have a relationship with people. That was his goal. That was the whole reason. If you're wondering, why am I here on this earth? You are here because God designed you to have a relationship with him. To, he designed us to love him and to worship him. But in order for there to be any relationship, take any relationship, you and a spouse, you and your kids, you and God, there has to be choice, right? Any relationship involves choice. With God, we have to choose to worship him, choose to follow him, and we can also choose to reject him. Any relationship that doesn't have that freedom isn't really a relationship. Let me illustrate it this way, okay? Christy is my wife. She, if you're new here, she was up leading worship today. When I met her in college, I liked her, and I said, I want to woo her. I want to impress her, I want her to choose me. So that would involve, you know, buying candy and going out to dinner, going on dates, finishing her math homework that she couldn't finish, you know, stuff like that. There was all these things that I was doing to try to impress Christy. Um, But all along the way, she had a choice where she could choose me or reject me. So what if, hypothetically, I said, hypothetically is important for what I'm about to say. What if, hypothetically, I said, you know what? I don't like that Christy has the option of rejecting me. So what I'm going to do instead, this is a better plan, I'm going to invite her over to my house, and then I'm going to lock her in the basement. (laughs) Right? So I create like a little dungeon, maybe like the well that you dig, and then you put her into the the well, and and I would lower food down and water and maybe a magazine or whatever, and then it would be perfect because she could never leave me right? I could say she would never reject me because she's going to be with me forever. At what point, if in that hypothetical, and it's hypothetical, that didn't really happen. If it did, you should probably all find another church. (laughs) At what point in that scenario could I confidently say that Christy loves me? 
Christy must really love me because she's never left me. She stood by me all these years. No, she didn't have the choice because she's, she's in the well. She's trapped in the basement, you know? Without choice, there can be no relationship. There is no love relationship without her ability to choose me or to reject me. Interesting point. During that first year when we were dating, she exercised that right to reject me and break up with me several times, at least three or four. But she finally came around. Um, Without freedom, there can be no love. So God created us with that freedom to choose him or to reject him, to choose good or to choose evil. And we choose evil often. We still do. And that is why there is evil in the world. So the second question is this. Why doesn't God stop evil? Okay, so evil's happening. Why doesn't God step in and stop it? If you hold to that view that God should uh, step in whenever something evil is going to happen, it kind of, that argument kind of falls apart pretty quick. And I by no means want to make light of things that have been going on in the world. I by no means want to make light of something hurtful that someone has done to you. But that argument that God should step in and stop anything evil, it falls apart pretty quick. Like taking the tragic shooting in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago, would we think, okay, well, what should have happened was when the guy went to pull the trigger, the gun should have just not worked, or maybe his hand not worked, or maybe God should have just zapped him and he went like paralyzed until the security got there, something to stop that tragedy from happening. And maybe you're here and you say, yes. That's exactly what God should have done. If I was God, that's exactly what I would have done. So I'll ask this question, and we're just going, you know, we're kind of walking down this road a little bit, that God should just step in and stop all evil and hurt in the world. If you had a button that you could push that would stop all evil and hurt and pain in the world, would you push it? We would all think, I I think maybe I would. But before you answer, let me ask this question. Have you ever done anything that caused hurt and pain for somebody in the world? You think, oh, well, yeah, but that's not the bad stuff. That's just, you know, saying something mean to my spouse or my kids or, or giving someone that special finger when I'm driving to work and rush hour traffic. That's not the really bad stuff. But how would that work using those examples? Anytime you're about to say something mean to your spouse, oh, yeah, honey, well, here's what I think, and then God all of a sudden renders you, like, mute. And, mm-hmm. Well, honey, I think mm-hmm. you can't quite... Or you're driving to work and that person cuts you off and you drive up and all of a sudden your fist becomes like, I can't, your knuckles seize up, I can't, must lift this finger, I can't do it, oh, I can't do anything evil, right? Now you would obviously say, okay, that's little things, that's different than killing 58 people in Las Vegas or genocide around the world or sex trafficking around the world, that's different. And of course it is, we would all say, of course it is, of course it is. But when God allows for our freedom, God allows for humanity's freedom, it allows for people to choose sometimes unimaginable evil and hurt and pain. But yet God, and I imagine it just breaks his heart where he says, I've given you freedom and look at what you're doing with it. Look at what you're doing with it. And we're also viewing this from our human point of view. And we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about Jesus. We as humans love to delineate evil and sin in terms of, well, this is not really bad. This is just a little something. And this is the really bad stuff here. We kind of have a scale. And coincidentally, we always downplay our, you know, sin choices. We always downplay our 
habits and our issues that we deal with. But the other people, they're the really bad ones, right? We do that. But what we learned from Scripture, what we talked about last week, in view of God, we can't view this in human terms like, well, this is not so bad, this is really bad. In view of a holy, righteous God, it's all sin. It's all evil, right? Our sin, left unchecked, leads to harsh, hurtful results, and that's made possible by our ability to choose or reject God. So the solution is not for God to step in and just randomly stop the things that are really bad. This is not a God problem. This is a sin problem. And our solution for evil in the world, what would we say the solution is? Is that lives would be changed by Jesus Christ. We got people in the room here who have had their lives drastically changed by Jesus Christ, who were making decisions that were leading them down sinful, evil paths, and God came in and through the mercy of Jesus turned it around, took what was new and brought new life. That's the solution for evil in the world. And you know what? That's our job is to go around and tell people about Jesus. So if we're going to think, man, why are all these bad things happening in Farmington? We say because there are people who are lost and we need to go tell them so that Jesus can turn their life around. That's our job. That's our job. The third question, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. We talked about why is there evil? Why does God allow it? The third one is this. This one's a little more difficult. What about random suffering? What about random things that aren't somebody's choice? Nobody chose this. This wasn't an evil action. Random things, natural disasters, sicknesses, silly, random, like a house that has an electrical switch that a wire gets crossed and starts an electrical fire and burns a house down. You know, tragic things, a, a baby that is born with, a, with the cord wrapped around its neck and causing a loss of oxygen and causing brain injury and brain damage. Random things, a young mom who gets cancer. These things that we look at and we just say, that is not right. That shouldn't happen. I mean, you agree, right? You look at those things and you're like, this was nobody's choice. This wasn't a drunk driver getting behind the wheel or a crazy person getting a gun and shooting at people. This is just random. You look at it and you think, God, this isn't someone's sinful choice. This is just random meanness on your part. This is just you being cruel. How could that young mom get cancer? How could that baby die? How could this happen? How could that happen? And uh, we, we look at those and we say, God, you could have stopped those. You could have stopped those. How does God answer for that? And I know we are walking through sensitive subject here. We've walked through seasons of hurt. Anyone in the room, we have walked through seasons of hurt and pain where the first question is, God, you could have stopped that. Why did you not do something? Well, I'm not going to try to answer for God today, which is probably a good thing for all of us, especially God. Um, here's what I know. Our world is broken. Our world is broken. It's not running right. And, and if you live long enough in this world, you say, yes, I agree. It's not running right. We have a road that's fairly busy right behind our house. And every morning at 8 o'clock or right around there, it must be a high school. I assume it's a high school student because that's when all the high schoolers are driving to their school. This student pulls onto the street, accelerates up the hill in his what must be like a 2001 Toyota Camry. A car that used to be running right. This car is not running right. And you can tell, every morning I can tell, oh, there it is, that same car, same time. The, the, where, where there was a muffler, there's nothing there now. 
Um, the engine just sounds like it has never had the oil change and it's missing a cylinder or two. The tires, you know when the tires wear uneven, they sound like they're square tires. And so this car accelerates up the hill and you just listen to it and you're like, that car is hurting, right? I think to myself, that's that same Toyota Camry. Every morning I can hear it. And I think that student must be going to high school. I also think that car is way nicer than the car I drove to high school when I was that kid's age. But you look at that and no one would say, that car is running great. That car is running great. Maybe when it was new, that car was running great, but it's obviously broken. Well, I think that's the way our world is, where you look at it and say, God created it to run right, but it's broken. It's not running right. There's this stuff that happens, and we all know this. We know that something isn't right. When you turn on the news, when you walk around town, you just, we just, can, are you with me? Do you just realize this world isn't right? There's stuff that happens that shouldn't be happening. And that's built into us. And I think just that alone, that that idea that's built into us, I think that alone points to God. I love that we have that awareness built into us that there's something better. There's something better because this isn't right. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He said, the fact that I find such, and this is not an exact quote, but he just said, the fact that I find such discomfort in this world can only mean one thing, is that I was made for another world. I love that thought. This world is broken, and that's in us, and that points to a God that says, yeah, you weren't made for this world. This world is broken. We've all experienced this. We've all experienced the broken world. And for those who suffer, I just want to read a couple verses because we've all experienced it. We all will experience it. John 16, says this. This is Jesus teaching his followers. I've told you these things so that in me you may have, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. He says it. You're going to suffer. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You're going to suffer. You're going to go through seasons in this broken world that are difficult, right? And some of you are in them right now. Some of you are in them right now. What I get from that, from Jesus saying that, is what's well, encouraging because he says, I've overcome the world. But what I also get from that is he's saying, everyone's going to do it. Everyone's going to go through it. If you go through a season of suffering, it's, it's tempting to think, well, I must have done something wrong. God must be mad at me. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It means this world is broken. Jesus himself suffered. And if Jesus is going to go through this broken world and suffer, certainly we are. Jesus never sinned. He never fell short. So if that's the case, we have to assume we're going to suffer as well. Second thing we see in Scripture is this. God is with us in our pain. So we're going to suffer but we know the truth of Scripture says that God is with us in our pain. Psalm 34, verse 18 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. He's close to the brokenhearted. When you are facing heartbreaking, heart-wrenching seasons of loss and pain and sickness, whatever it is. You can know the truth. You might, not, you might not feel it, but you know God is close. God is close when you are brokenhearted. And one other thing we learn from Scripture when we go through seasons of suffering is that it will not last forever. It's not going to last forever. And our hope ultimately is in that. In the midst of suffering, we can know, we can know that this will not last forever. God can heal. God can step in and change the situation. And ultimately, heaven awaits. Either way, whether God steps in now or we wait till heaven, 
it will not last forever. We would love to avoid pain and suffering, but we will not. However, in the midst, we know that God is there with us, and it will not last forever. I want to talk about one final thing in the few minutes we have left, and this one is tricky for us. Um, Because when we go through seasons of pain, when we, either us or a loved one, when we're experiencing something difficult, pain, loss, sickness, whatever it is, um, we tend to think, well, just get through it. Just get through it. It's going to, you know, it's my turn for a while. You know, I've I've run a bad luck and I'm going to suffer for a while, and then we'll just get through it. Um, And that's part of it. But I want to encourage you and challenge you with this. There may be a higher purpose for your pain. There may be a higher purpose for your suffering and what you're going through. You might have questions about why there's evil in the world, and I hope we can find great comfort in the verses that I just read and the truths of Scripture. But there's one other thing, and that's this. There might be a higher purpose for what you're going through. There might be a higher purpose for your pain. Suffering is often a path that leads to God. The skeptics would say suffering is reason to say that there's a path that leads away from God. Suffering leads away from God. God can't even exist if there's suffering. But what I've experienced and what the Word says and what I think is true, suffering is a path that leads to God, not away from Him. We grow through suffering, right? We grow through suffering. We have greater fellowship with Christ when we suffer. We share in His sufferings. And I've seen it personally, and I've heard hundreds of testimonies. Parts of the world where suffering is at its most extreme, where poverty is at its most extreme, in those parts of the world, you will find an extreme faith as well. I've experienced this where my parents serve in Africa. I've experienced some of the poorest people in the world have the strongest faith. They have the most reasons to push away God, but yet there's something in them that says, no, my suffering points me to God. Extreme pain and suffering often leads to extreme faith. We've gone through seasons, and I mentioned this already. Christy and I have gone through seasons where we thought we were going to lose one of our kids about a week into their life. Doctors had said, there's nothing more we can do. Um, We've seen our kids and our family just battle through other things that were tearing them apart. We have experienced relational um, pain from people who are close to us. You know, it's a long time ago, but what we thought was our support system turned out that they were not, and they were the ones that hurt us. We've gone through seasons where we had no clue. We had no job and no clue how we were going to pay any bills. And that's a few of them. And you might be thinking, man, if that's the worst you got, I would take that. And that could be the case. But here's what I know from our lowest days. Here's what I know. Here's what I know to be true. Here's what I experienced. God was close in that. God was close, right? God was close. And some of you are nodding because you've experienced that. God was close in that season. I could feel his closeness. I prayed more. And there's something, you know, when we go through a difficult season... We pray more, right? We do. I prayed more in those seasons. I prayed like I had never prayed before going through those seasons. I worshiped more intently. The Word of God, the truth of Scripture became alive. I spent a whole lot more time in the Word. I leaned in in those seasons. I leaned in to the promises of Scripture, to the promises of the goodness of God. When everything was falling apart, I said, I'm leaning into you, God. 
And I felt him close to me. There was something that happened in those seasons where there was a closeness of God that I haven't always experienced. There are deeper things that God teaches us in the midst of suffering. If you go through life with just smooth sailing, everything's easy, well, that can lead to complacency, right? But when you go through a difficult season, that causes you to engage your faith in a deeper level. Some people would say, critics of Christianity or religion as a whole would say, well, religion is just a crutch. Christianity is just a crutch for those who are weak. And you know what I say to that? You are right. (laughs) You are right. Because in those seasons when I was weak, I leaned on the promises of God. In those seasons when everything was falling apart, I leaned on God and I felt him holding our family up. And I saw him move in ways that I don't often see. I I see that in other people's seasons of suffering where God is close. Thank you. When we are weak, he is strong. That's what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the verse will be up on the screen. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities than the, that the power of Christ may rest on me. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I'd rather boast in my suffering because when I'm weak, he's strong. When my world is falling apart, that's when God is real. That's when his strength is on display. That's when the power of Christ is resting on me. When we are self-sufficient, what do we do first? We say, God, I don't need you. I got this all figured out. When we are weak and suffering, we lean into God. I have seen God redeem people's seasons of suffering and pain. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen him use that in our seasons of suffering and pain, where now we are able to help others go through it. If you're battling something now, anxiety, depression, sickness, loss, death in the family, whatever it is, God can redeem it because what he's going to do is he's going to build strength in you through it now. You're going to lean into him now. And then down the road, you're going to help others and others are going to be suffering. And you're going to say, you know what God did for me? He's going to do the same thing for you. He's going to do the same thing for you. Walk through this. You're going to be able to encourage other people. Dennis is sitting in the front row here. He had a story where he was incarcerated. He had made decisions. His life had fallen apart. And now what has God done? He's using Dennis to go around and mentor young men, saying, you know what? I was on that road. Here's where it leads. But now look at what God has done in my life. God's going to do the same thing in your pain and your suffering, right? Amen? God is going to redeem it. I've seen it a hundred times. I've seen it over and over. There might be... There just might be, and it is the worst to think about this when you're going through it, but there might be a higher purpose to your pain. There might be. Got a few minutes left. I'm going to talk about, because if we're talking about suffering and pain and looking at characters in the Bible, who's the one character you think about that's synonymous with suffering and pain? It's a guy named Job, the book of Job. It's funny because you talk to people about the Scripture and they've heard of Jesus, and maybe people who know nothing about the Bible, they know Jesus maybe Adam and Eve, and they know Job. It seems everyone can relate to Job. They're like, isn't that the guy who lost everything? Isn't that the guy who lost everything? They know Job's life is synonymous with suffering. The book of Job in the Old Testament, it's right before the book of Psalms. It's really an essay on suffering. uh, Job is a godly man. He is a blessed man. He is a wealthy man. And God allows Satan to cause immense pain to Job. 
and suffering. He loses everything. He loses his family. He loses all his possessions. He loses his health. His life falls apart from the height of heights to the lowest of lows. And the book of Job, it's like 40-some chapters. Well, the actual events of the story take place in like the first chapter. And then every chapter after that is Job asking all the questions that we ask to God. Why? Why is this happening? Where are you? How could you allow this to happen to me? There's other questions. Can't you help? Why are you not helping me? How long is this going to last? He asked the question, why are the wicked people in the world doing so well? And I'm the one who has followed you my whole life, and my world has fallen apart. These are tough questions that Job is asking. There's also three friends that Job has. They're his quote-unquote godly Christian friends. This is an example of why sometimes when you're going through the hardest time, Christians are the worst people to talk to. <laughs> right? Because they've got all the churchy answers. And so Job's friends, there's chapter after chapter of them kind of getting on Job's case saying, you shouldn't question God. Where's your faith? God's obviously trying to correct something in you. If you've ever heard that, oh, God's mad at you. God's trying. The reason this is, this is falling apart in your life is because God's mad at you. You've done something wrong. And they tell Job, repent, because obviously you've done something wrong. That's why all this is happening. All these church responses, and if you've ever gotten that cold-hearted church response from people, and I'm not knocking on church responses, we're in church right now, but there can be good that comes of it too, but sometimes Christian people just have the worst answers, and you're like, be quiet. Go, go home and do your devotions or something. <laughs> but Job's friends do this. So for chapter after chapter, Job's wife even early on says, you know what? You should just curse God and die. Like, that's the quote. Why don't you, cur why don't you give up? Curse, curse God and die. This is like <laughs> thoughtful, helpful wisdom from his wife at the time. And for about 30 chapters, 30 plus chapters, this is all that happens. Job questions God. Job's friends are trying to counsel him with godly wisdom, and it's failing miserably. Job's wife is questioning him. And it goes on and on and on and on. And you read it, you're like, wow, this is going on and on. And I imagine God was listening to in heaven like, wow, this is, you know, let's wrap it up, everybody here. This is going on and on and on. And finally, in chapter 38, God responds to Job's questions. God has allowed his life to fall apart, incredible hurt and pain and suffering. And then all the questions, all the questions from his wife, all the questions from Job, all the questions from Job's friends. And in chapter 38, God responds. And I love God's response. And it might be different than what you would expect God to respond in that moment if you've never read this book. And it could, all, it could seem cold, God's response, if you're going through suffering and you got this response. But I love that he didn't respond to Job with, how dare you question me? Um, you're making me feel, you know, you're making me feel bad, Joe. You know, how dare you question me and all these things? Uh, where's your faith? People have it worse off than you. Don't you know that, Joe? People have it worse than you. God didn't respond in those ways. I love God's response. In chapter 38, it starts, and you know it's going to be good when God's response starts with this. Job, brace yourself. Brace yourself like a man, for now I have some questions for you. And in that moment, you ever been in the moment where you know you've pushed dad far enough? And it's not like reaction anger, it's sit down and we're going to talk about some stuff. 
That's this response. Brace yourself like a man, for now I've got questions for you, Job. You've been questioning me for 30 chapters. I have some questions for you. And God starts in. And here's his questions for Job. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Right? When I created all of this, where were you? Have you ever commanded the morning, the sun to appear, Job? Have you ever commanded the sun to rise? And then at the end of the day, have you ever taken the sun and put it, it he says this, have you ever caused light and then darkness to rise? And at the end of the day, do you, ca- do you cause them to take them to their home? Like, do you take them to their home? I love that. He's saying, when the sun is done, do you say, okay, sun, here come, here's where you're going to stay for the night. Darkness, now you rest. This is what God is saying. Job, have you ever put the boundaries on the oceans and the seas? Have you put the stars in place? Do you cause the stars to move around? Now, this goes on. God goes on for about three chapters of just questions. Now, you might hear that and be like, ah, sounds kind of jerky, right? Like, why? I would have rather just said, ah, I would have rather just God say, I know, Job, it's going to be okay there, there. But what God says is, here's who I am. You're not talking to one of your friends here. I put the stars in the sky. I hemmed in the oceans. I caused the sun and the darkness to appear each day. I set this all in motion. What God is doing is giving Job just a glimpse of who he is. What God is doing is saying, Job, you're not talking to your friends now. Here's just a glimpse of who you are talking to. And Job finally responds after several chapters of God's questions. And this word is going to be up on this. These verses are going to be on the screen. Here's Job's response in chapter 42, verse 5. It says this, I had only heard about you before. This is Job talking to God. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. So after all this hurt and pain and suffering that Job's gone through, all these questions, God responds not with, here, let me make it up to you. I feel so bad. It wasn't me. It was Satan. He wanted to do it. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was, here's a glimpse of who I am. Here's who I am. And Job responds with, I'd only heard about you before, but now I see who you really are. And in that alone, Job is reassured. Job is comforted. In that alone, just understanding who God is, his might, his holiness, his power, that helped Job understand, this is who I am talking to. This is who I am dealing with. And everything else may fall apart. And this is such a tough lesson. Everything else may fall apart, but I have God. And God is enough. Everything might fall apart, but I have God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that is enough. This isn't a self-help book. This is God, the creator, and that is enough. I think it is easy to criticize God from a distance. And I want to give you a word of caution. If you've ever used pain and suffering from somebody else, or you see what's going on around the world, or you see somebody else's hurt, and you say, well, how could God allow that to happen? We don't know what God is doing in that situation, right? The people who are in that situation might be like me, and they say, yeah, things fell apart, but that's where God was the closest. So be careful when you use other people's pain as a case against God. But it's also easy to criticize God from a distance in this. Many people who are God's harshest critics have never, ever pursued a real relationship with God. You know, I've had people in my life, you know, maybe you've experienced this. People come to you and they say, 
I never really knew you. I had people at college say that when I first saw you at college, I thought you were, and then, you know, I thought you were kind of a jerk. Or I thought you were mean or this. But now that I've gotten to know you, you're actually kind of nice. And in that moment, I'm kind of like, ah, uh, thanks. You know, I would have rather you maybe not tell me that, but maybe you've experienced that. Where once, maybe you've experienced the other way, where you look at a situation, you've got it all figured out. All the social issues that are going on in our world today. Well, that group of people this and that group of people that. And then you sit down and you get to know the situation a little bit. You become personal with the situation a little bit. You get to know somebody's story a little bit. You build a relationship. All of a sudden, everything changes. Oh, I see it differently now. A lot of people do that with God. They don't, they're not pursuing God. They're not diving into the Word. This is not a trusting, loving relationship. They haven't chosen to believe in God, and yet they have all the answers to why God is doing everything wrong. If that's you, I just want to encourage you. Maybe you're a skeptic, and maybe I've said nothing that has convinced you otherwise today. But if that's you, I just want you to consider this. Draw close to God. Lean into God. Read the Word of God. Pray to God. Build a relationship with God, and maybe, just maybe, you're going to see that God is moving in these situations. God is moving in your pain and suffering like you hadn't realized before. We were never meant to understand everything that God does. He's God. He made the stars. We're never going to understand everything, understand all that He does. We were never meant to, but more and more, we need to lean on Him, the firm foundation of His goodness and faithfulness. One final verse as we wrap up today is found in the book of Revelation. Because I want you to consider this. Maybe you're going through suffering. Maybe someone close to you is. What we've talked about today, and here's was my goals for the for the sermon today. I want you to realize there can be suffering and still a good God. That in any season of suffering or doubt, that you can say, I've got God, and that is unchanging, and that is enough. And remember that our ultimate hope is heaven. Our ultimate hope is heaven. This world is not our home. We were not made for this world. This world is a broken-down 2001 Toyota Camry with no muffler and bad tires. It is broken, but is not our home. Heaven is our home. So this verse in Revelation, this is a verse, the last book of the Bible, this is the disciple John at the end of his life. He's basically, all the other disciples at this point have been executed for their faith. So John has experienced loss. John himself has not been killed for his faith, but he's been exiled to this island. They basically said, we're not going to kill any more disciples because every time we kill a disciple, more pop up. So what we're going to do with John, we're just going to leave him on an island where he's just going to die quietly. So John is on this island, the end of his life. All his friends, all the disciples have died. He is going to die there. And God gives John a revelation, that's why the book is called that, of the things to come the hope that is to come. And that's how we get our book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. I'm going to read these verses, Revelation 21, verse 3 through 5, and I want you to just think about the hope of heaven. This world is not our home. It says this, And I heard a loud voice. This is God giving John a revelation of the things to come. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
He is good. He is with you. And he's making everything new. Let's pray together.